This is probably my most uh, favorite Sunday of the whole year out of all 52 of them. Uh, Senior High Sunday is a time that I've really come to love here. And uh, you have witnessed some of the reasons of why I like it so much because of seeing what God is doing in the lives uh, of these young people and the way he can use them in ministry to lead all of us uh, to worship God. It's just a thrilling uh, experience for me, and I hope it is for you. And the, uh, the other thing is if you stay in uh, a ministry like this long enough, then you see where these uh, people are headed by the people who have gone before them. And after the first service, I had a couple of uh, alums, as they call themselves, come up and talk about their senior high Sunday and being glad they were sitting out here in the audience and not uh, having to stand behind a mic in some way. And uh, and then I noticed that uh, April Friend, who used to be in the high school group, is now part of the junior high staff. And uh, you see that as they grow up that God is using them in great ways. I have been in contact with a person who graduated last year. She's up in, uh, uh, let's see, it's Seattle Pacific, and has been accepted to go on a missions uh, experience over her spring break up to Canada. And again, it just reminds me of the... uh, great things that God is doing uh, in the lives of people far younger than myself and far younger than most of you. So uh, hopefully we'll all be encouraged by the time we've already had this morning. And uh, for some of them who have been around Cole far longer than I have, for uh, Sharon and Sandra Jones and uh, Noel who sang the first number and Cindy who sang the the second one and uh, I think Brian and I arrived at Cole about the same time. And uh, he'll probably be leaving uh, before I do. At least I hope you leave Cole before I do, Brian. So, uh, David and Carolyn and uh, others in the congregation are perhaps in flight at this very uh, moment on their way to Israel. If you didn't know that, and if what you need to be doing, we all need to be doing, is praying for them. It would be a very profitable and a very safe uh, experience. Having been in Israel, I know that uh, things can go haywired almost any time. My wife was stranded there uh, in one of the wars when she was in college with a group over there. So we hope that nothing like that uh, takes place. And on the other hand, it can be a very dynamic, exciting experience. And that's what I pray will happen for all those who are going with David and Carolyn. And even though David's away, though, we're not going to uh, depart from our uh, trek through the book of Nehemiah. So we will be uh, looking at chapter 10. This morning, those of you who have been in growth groups this week have already taken a look at chapter 10, and we'll see shortly whether what I have found in chapter 10 are the same things that you have found in chapter 10. But for those of you who know my wife Nancy well, uh, know that she has a, a fascination with a particular person other than myself. Uh, this person happens to be a celebrity, very world-famous world-traveling person, Uh, and when this person's face appears on the cover of uh, Life or People, Time, or Newsweek at the magazine stand, it's not long before that magazine appears on a table in our house. In fact, I think we even have one or two books uh, about this particular person, and this person says very charming things and uh, wears beautiful clothes, has a couple of children and uh, is royalty. And if you haven't figured it out by now, it is uh, Princess Di, Diana, that uh, my wife um, 
loves to kind of keep up with, keep in contact with. And I know there are a few of you out there, too, who, who do as well. And what I'm struck by with uh, royalty is that it's a matter of what uh, the people are, who they are, not so much what they do. Prince Charles is royalty because he was born into the royal family. And Princess Diana is the princess because she married uh, Prince Charles. And it's not a matter of either of them performing to maintain their royalty. Uh, They are just royalty, regardless of what they do, uh, good or bad, right or wrong or whatever, and they probably will always be royalty. And oftentimes, in my mind, I tend to make a comparison between royalty and holiness. Because as children of God, those of us who have come to know Jesus Christ in a personal way, Uh, We are his children, and he sees us as royalty, and he also sees us as holy, but holy in a positional sense. And there is actually more to uh, holiness than just that positional sense. There's a very practical sense uh, to the side of holiness. The things that we do every day, day in and day out, that reveal our true character, that when people see us, Uh, they know whether or not we're acting in a holy way. And this can be uh, inconsistent. In other words, a Christian who is holy in position, and they're standing with the Lord, can be very unholy depending upon the choices that one chooses to make. Royalty will always be royalty, but Christians will not always be holy, unfortunately, uh, for us. But holiness... I think, begins or comes about when we understand God's Word well enough to apply it to our relationships in our family life, with our business associates and friends, and within our relationships of the body of Christ. Because that is really one reason why God gave His commands to the people of Israel so long ago, was that they would know what it was like to be holy, what the standard of holiness and and conduct should be. Now, the people who left Babylon and came back to Jerusalem were now under Nehemiah, and they were just beginning to experience, again, what it meant to be called a child of God, what God was expecting of them in the way of holiness, to be His holy people. And as they... Uh, returned several chapters back in chapter 8. They were exposed to the law. They read the law, or Ezra read the law to them. And as a result of that reading of the law, there was a reaction. Their hearts were soft, or softened, and they were very repentant. All of chapter 9 is really a prayer of repentance to the Lord, their God, And so as a result of their reading the law and of their repentant heart, they had a desire to reform their lifestyle, to become obedient. They were beginning to see the truth that Paul talks about, or actually, excuse me, that David talks about, and also Hosea talks about when he says, obedience is to be desired more than sacrifice. That God prefers to have our hearts totally sold out to Him so that we will do what He wants us to do. Not just the token gifts that we tend to give at times 
And the Israelites were to be giving sacrifices at the temple. But God says, what I desire is obedience more than sacrifice. So on their uh, way to this obedient lifestyle, uh, they were led in a movement by Nehemiah and others towards a covenant. And this covenant is... The beginnings of it appear on verse 38 of chapter 9, where it says, Now because of all this, we are making an agreement in writing, and on the sealed document are the names of our leaders, our Levites, and our priests. These were the folks who uh, wrote up the document. I imagine that Nehemiah and Ezra and a few others got together and wrote up this document that was to be ratified by the rest of the people. And then uh, the people uh, would sign it, or at least representatives of the people. For in chapter 10, verses 1 through 27, are the list of names too great and too difficult for me to even begin to pronounce. But they, they are representative of the whole people. You have Nehemiah the governor, followed by Zedekiah, his right-hand man, followed by priests, Levites, and leaders of the people. And they signed the covenant, and these are probably the heads of households representing several different uh, family groups. And so the rest of the people uh, willingly submitted themselves to this particular covenant. And just what was the document that they submitted themselves to? Well, in your uh, book this morning, I dare call it a bulletin, but uh, one of the blue sheets in there has on it Nehemiah chapter 10 outlined for you on one side, and then on the other side is my own rendition of uh, the covenant with a preamble, we the people of United Israel, etc., etc., and the various articles of the things that uh, they wanted to do, followed by a bill of rights. So in the first part of chapter 10, you have the people of the covenant. Then in the last part of chapter 10, you have the covenant uh, of the people. And you might be thinking, well, why would they want to go public with this kind of a thing, to put this information out? After all, couldn't they be taught these things uh, in the, the temple on the Sabbath? Or couldn't they be taught these things at home? Or even in their growth groups, perhaps they could learn these things? And that's true that they could have, but I think there are two good reasons as to why Nehemiah felt necessary to go public here. The first one uh, is cultural, that the, the people were used to this kind of covenant making, this kind of a document, to put these things down in this way. So it was a very comfortable thing for them to do, was to, be, to making this kind of a covenant with God, so to speak of the changes that need to take place. But secondly, and more importantly, I think they went about it in this fashion for accountability's sake. All I have to do is think of how often uh, I have in my mind agreed to do something or verbally told someone I would do something only to forget, only to have it vanished. I've learned now that if I tell somebody I'm going to do something for them or meet with them, I need to write it down. If I'm going to pray for them, I need to write that prayer request down. Otherwise, I'll forget. 
That's the way my mind is. And I kind of like that when it comes to my own personal sin. I like to be able to forget it. Because I can rationalize it better that way. I don't remember it as often. See, accountability is a very helpful thing for us in the process of growth. That when we get together with somebody and share with them where we're struggling, where our hurts are, what we need to to do, how we need to grow, that, that that other person or that group of people can begin to understand us, they can begin to pray for us, they can begin to help us in that process of growth. And so I think accountability is a very healthy, a very good thing. Because when it takes place between uh, two people or, or a person and a group of people, then we begin to develop that, that loving, helpful, caring attitude and community that the body of Christ should be. This is the place amongst all of you or in your growth groups that you should feel free to share who you really are. Because hopefully we do love you. Hopefully we do accept you. And for sure we know that you're sinners because we all are. And we all struggle in that way. So accountability is the thing that that can help us uh, move ahead in our growth. Dennis and I have been working together uh, in this accountability area. Both of us have different struggles that we're involved in. And so we're keeping each other accountable as we meet regularly. We ask, how are you doing in this area? How are you doing in that area? And it helps us to pray for each other and to be concerned and to be loving towards each other. And uh, for me, it helps me be more forgiving towards Dennis. So uh, they, they decided that they needed to be uh, accountable. And then, as I've mentioned earlier, it was a result of reading this law and repenting in their hearts that the reforms came about. But the real purpose of this covenant, I believe, was to bring about personal piety in their individual lives, personal holiness. See, their, their priorities were all messed up. That's why they needed to write this covenant, was to reestablish their priorities. And priorities are really funny things. You know, they really tell us what is most important in our lives. And oftentimes, um, they serve as guideposts because we head towards them. And then they are reflectors because as we look behind us, they, they tell us where we have been. And if I want to know what my real priorities are, all I have to do is ask someone like Dennis, who knows me very well, because he, he observes my lifestyle and he can see what's most important to me. In fact, we like priorities so much uh, in this society that we usually have two sets of them. We have what I call guidepost priorities. Those are the ideal priorities. When we make them up, we're sitting down in a very contemplative, quiet atmosphere, Remembering the words of some seminar that we attended that says, now let's see, your priorities are, oh yeah, first is God, my relationship with God, that's it. Second is my spouse. Third is my family. Uh, fourth is my ministry. Fifth are uh, my friends, perhaps. Sixth is work, etc., and so on. And those are our guidepost priorities. That's what we're aiming at. Well, then we have what I call the reflector priorities. Those are our real priorities. They tell us how we're really doing, where we're really spending our time, what's really important to us, because where we spend our time, energy, and resources, are the, we spend them on the things that are really most important to us. See, I can lie about my priorities, but my real priorities don't lie. 
They're very open and real for everybody to see. And so uh, it was a matter of getting their priorities in the right order, and oftentimes that's what it is for us, uh, having to deal with our priorities, trying to get them in the right order, because when my priorities, my real and ideal priorities are not matched up and aligned with each other for a period of time, I suffer from the same problems that these Israelites were having. Lack of holiness in my life. Lack of obedience to God, what he desires me to do. So what were uh, these priorities? To begin with, the first one, these people began to realize the truth of what Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, Bad company corrupts good morals. Starts out in verse 28. Now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God. Now I don't believe here that the separation they're talking about is primarily geographical or physical, though in some instances that may have been the case. I believe the primary uh, point of separation here is assimilation into their culture, into the Gentiles' ways of doing things. Because that was that assimilation was causing the children of God, the Israelites, to lose their distinctiveness as a holy people, as a people sold out for God. And as Paul lets us know in Romans 12, too, he says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may recognize what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And then the Apostle Peter picks up on this in 1 Peter 1 when he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former desires which you had in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. So it was a matter of separation. Now there may be times in which we do have to separate ourselves from non-Christians. But those times should be times at which we see them heading into an activity, an event, a lifestyle or behavior for which it would be inappropriate for us to join with them. Because we should all have non-Christian friends. We should all be developing relationships with non-Christians. For how else will they hear the gospel? They won't hear it from themselves. They'll hear it as we come in contact with them. Yet, yet we do not want to be assimilated into their culture. Jesus, in his last uh, session with his disciples in the upper room, said, you are to be in the world, partaking in the world, but you're not to be of the world. You're not to live according to the ways of the world. You're to live a different kind of life. And those are some of the final words that he gave to the disciples. And they're very instructive for all of us. And what it boils down to, that it's not just a matter of separation from something, without separation to something. See, the people here separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God. We need to do that. We need to separate ourselves from those things that are holding us back from developing a Christ-like character. But we need to separate ourselves to the Word of God. That's when our personal piety, that's when our personal holiness will begin to formulate and to take place. 
And I'll move on from here to the other pinnacles of our life, to our home life, our business life, our school life, relationships with the rest of the body of Christ. The home life for the uh, Israelites was a very important traditional spot. It was a center of, of activity for them. Deuteronomy 6 makes it very clear that in the home is where the religious truths about God were to be taught. And the lion's share of responsibility rested on old dad. Yet the process somehow had, had come up short here. They realized that uh, it needed to take place, but it wasn't. Perhaps it started back in chapter 8 with the reading of the law. As we find out in the rest of verse 28, that they separated themselves to the law of God. Their wives, their sons, their daughters, and all those who had knowledge and understanding are joining with their kinsmen, their nobles, and are taking on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given through Moses, God's servant, and to keep and to observe all the commandments of God our Lord and his ordinances and his statutes. See, that they saw the importance of teaching their sons and their daughters. Knowledge about God's word may begin in a setting like this, in this building, or it may come about in a midweek Bible study, in a growth group, various places. But where does it best develop? Where does that knowledge best turn into understanding? Really where truth is worked out in practical lives. And that is in the home environment, where we're all interrelated with each other as a family. And the reason I think so is because I know that more truth is caught than is taught. I'm sure you've heard that phrase. Let me give it to you again. More truth is caught than is taught. And so for children within a family, the truth that they learn really depends upon mom and dad. Depends upon what mom and dad teach. And more importantly, it depends upon what mom and dad model. And that was true back in the time of these Israelites, and it's just as true today. That if we want our sons and our daughters to have knowledge and understanding, to grow in appreciation and obedience to God's word, we, as parents, have to lead the way. We have to instruct them and teach them. Homeschooling was definitely the model at this time for teaching religious truth. That was God's plan for this for these people, for his religious truth, was to teach them at home. And it was because it was the natural place that the teaching would take place. And most of the teenagers that I know take their cues from mom and dad. And one reason they do that is the home is still the institution where they spend the most amount of time over any other institution. In other words, children spend more time at home than in any other single Institution. They may not be home the majority of the time, but they're home more than they're in any other spot, hopefully. <clears throat> so as, as mom and dad provide us with this model, these Israelites were able to think in terms of the things that they needed to do, the things they needed to correct. They needed to begin to listen again to God's law. Several years ago, when uh, the Billy Graham Crusade came to town, um, a man by the name of Dennis Agajanian came to Boise two or three times. And Dennis is a, a songwriter, singer, has some albums out. But what Dennis left me with was not one of his albums 
so much as one of his sayings. As he would be uh, playing his songs, and they, these were outreaches towards teenagers at that time, uh, he was saying that if we don't listen to someone, we'll listen to anyone. And I thought, you know, that's really true. That if we don't choose to listen to someone, we'll end up listening to anyone. And that can be very dangerous, to listen to just anyone. So as, as they had their home life developed, and they, they made some articles with respect to their home life, what they wanted to take place, they realized that they had to move out beyond the home. That what they did in the, their home had to move outside of the home, into society where they lived. And as we look at verse 31, we see that they had uh, some problems in this business world of theirs. As for the peoples of the land who bring wares or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or holy day, and we will forego the crops the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Somehow, these people had it in their minds that it was uh, unlawful for them to be selling on the Sabbath, but it was not unlawful for them to be wheeling and dealing with the Gentiles on the Sabbath day. The day of rest of which they were to spend time doing other things than business activities. And then they also realized that the law called for them to allow the land to lie without planting crops on it one year and seven. The seventh year it was to lie without any uh, productivity to give the land rest. Now that sounds like a good idea in a society where the government may pay you not to plant crops. And you could still get along with that. But they didn't do that at this time. They had to survive from the sixth year to the eighth year, so to speak, or to year one again. On the crops from the sixth year had to last them for two years. And that required a certain amount of faith and trust in God's provision. But they didn't have that close association to trust God in this way. And then also on the seventh year, they were supposed to forgive their debts to their fellow Jewish people. In other words, if... Two Jews were in a loan agreement, so to speak, uh, a note. One Jewish person uh, had a note from another Jewish person saying that X amount of dollars were owed. The person who held the note was to write paid on it, stamp it paid in full, and hand it back and say the debt is paid or forgiven. There will be no collection of that debt. Well, that's very hard to do. I'm sure that's very hard for any of us to do. When we have uh, money, in this sense, that we're to, uh, you know, we want to collect it. We want to get back the money that we've loaned out. And it's not that we're not able to do that today, but you can identify with their feeling, their struggle of not wanting to forgive these debts to the people. So they had some areas that were needed to be, be dealt with in their business life. And as I thought about that, I thought, well, you know, today we have the same kinds of problems. It's very hard for us to be holy in our workaday world, day after day. Sometimes stinginess is labeled as being a responsible steward. Sometimes having a, uh, a difficult personality is put off as being just a, a tough, loving person. Sometimes we go to litigation in the courts, to seek justice, what we think is justice. 
And sometimes we as Christians are the most guilty of robbing employers of time for the kingdom of God. If you have a 10-minute break and you think, well, gosh, I'm in the midst of a conversation here, and so if I go another 10 or 15 minutes, God won't really mind. He'll really be happy about that. Or if I have a half hour off for lunch, and it's a Bible study, but it requires an hour, well, God really won't mind because it's a Bible study. The problem is, yes, God does mind because we're stealing. We're robbing people. They pay us to do certain things over a certain period of time. So we need to be careful there, how we're using our time in these situations. And God uh, actually expects us to be holy. After we are exposed to his word, hopefully we are exposed by his word, and we can move uh, on towards holiness in God's provision for us. But the interesting thing about holiness is that God doesn't demand that we do anything that he doesn't provide for us the resources to carry it out. That's one reason that the Holy Spirit is provided for us. With the Holy Spirit in our lives, then we can do the things that God wants us to do. So we begin to see right from wrong, good from bad, just from unjust. And once we see it, the Holy Spirit then will also help us do the good thing, the right thing, the just thing. But it's not that we might be glorified. It's so that God would be glorified. Just as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, He said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they would see your good works and glorify who? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. See, that's what happens in our workaday world. Whether it's at the office, at school, at home, in the neighborhood, wherever. When we respond to holiness, when we allow God's Spirit to work through us, then hopefully people will see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Holiness cannot be uh, completed without consideration of our relationship to God in a personal way and our relationship with the body of Christ. And as you look at the rest of uh, verses 32 to 39, you see that that contains material related to uh, the temple worship of the Jews. Eight times in these eight verses, the phrase, house of our God, appears. Now, the reason this material is last is not because it is least. It is last because it is the most significant material. It is touching on the, the most important area of their life, their relationship with God and the religious community. And there were some problems that they were having. They were not uh, giving to God what they were supposed to be giving to God. They weren't behaving with each other the way that they were supposed to behave with each other. And so the idea of first fruits that God demanded that the firstborn son was his. It was redeemable through a price, but it belonged to God. The idea of the first fruit of the crops were to go to God. The first of the herds were to go to God. For a variety of reasons, but one important reason, I think, is not because God needed more sons, or because God needed more animals, or because God needed more crops. The reason that this took place was so that the people would realize God's goodness, His graciousness towards them, and the fact that they were dependent upon God, 
He was providing for their needs. And as they would get involved in this form of worship and relationship with God, they would grow closer to God and realize how dependent they were upon God and how much God loved them because of what He was providing for them. And in the same way, we also relate to God, though not through the temple that the Jews had. Again, God in His graciousness has provided us with really a better way. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and chapter 6, Paul talks about this, that our bodies as individuals and also as, as believers here, in a corporate sense, we are the temple. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says, Do you all not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. And in 1 Corinthians 6, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price? Therefore, glorify God in your body. That we are to be the ones who glorify God in our body as the Holy Spirit comes and works through us and helps us to make those decisions of how we're to use our time and our energy and our resource and how we're to relate back to God and how we're to relate with each other. What I've realized this week is I cannot disassociate my relationship with God and my relationship with all of you as the body of Christ. I am linked together with God and I am linked together with all of you through His Holy Spirit. I can't treat them separately. That they're bound up in one because the Holy Spirit is in me and He's in all of you drawing us all together. Now when I talk about uh, holiness and how it works out in our life and what God should or could be doing in our lives with teenagers, oftentimes I draw or ask them to picture a piece of pie or a piece of pizza. Take your pick, whatever flavor you prefer. And then let's cut that pie into, into several different pieces, eight, ten, whatever, and let's label all those pieces. Let's call one home life. Let's call one school life. One is work. One is entertainment. One is friends. One is relationship to God. And one is the senior high group, whatever it may be. And as you cut those, that pie into those pieces, you find out that each piece is its own separate piece. It is not related to any of the other pieces. So consequently, a person can behave in a different fashion depending upon which slice of life he or she is plugged into. So therefore, if a person is coming to the senior high group at Cole Church on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night or whenever we're getting together they can plug into the holiness mode and give us a holy look and that piece of pie. But then if they're out with their friends or uh, where there's peer pressure or entertainment or at home, then they can slip into a different kind of behavior, a different mode, and be unholy people in that sense. So now I say, let's draw a circle inside that pie. And let's take off the label of one slice that says spiritual life or relationship to God. And let's put that in that inner circle, relationship to God. And that inner circle touches the tip of every piece of pie. It permeates it. It's a part of it. So all of a sudden, we have different kinds of pieces of pie. We have a whole new ball game of how we live life. 
So we begin to see that God is related to every slice of pie. He's related to every aspect of my life. He's not just a slice of the pie. He's involved in being in every slice of the pie. So there is no longer any distinction between the secular and the sacred or the spiritual. All of life becomes sacred. All of life has that spiritual permeation to it where God is involved in each step. And therefore, when I think about how I'm spending my time or how I'm spending my money or what uh, entertainment I'm involved with or what music I listen to or what I do at school or work or wherever, everything filters through that relationship with God because he's touching every piece of the pie. And when that takes place, when he begins to touch every aspect of our life and helps us in the decisions that we need to make, then we are indeed heading toward holiness in the practical sense. Now, because this is Senior High Sunday, I'm going to do one of the things that I sometimes do with a senior high group, and that is try to reinforce some of this through a song. This is a song by the Imperials uh, called Part-Time Servant. Hopefully the uh, people in the sound booth are ready. Gerard, you got it back there? Okay. So just uh, relax and use this to help you understand the words.